Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. That's found on page 1064 of the Pew Bibles. Mark chapter 1. We will be reading verses 21 through 28. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was there in the synagogue, in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Over the years, every generation has witnessed great speakers who spoke during critical times in our world. And when they spoke, they changed the course of history. We think of Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address or Winston Churchill's remarkable speech about never giving up to the enemy. And we think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. What set these men apart from others was the fact that they spoke with authority. Authority as it is defined is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. Then we consider the great preachers who have been a gift to God's church over the centuries like those of the Reformation And how they spoke with an authority, but this authority was not of themselves. They spoke with an authority that came from God and from His Word. It was an authority that was derived. It was derived from their God who has all authority in Himself. It was derived from the Word because without the Word, preachers and teachers of the church would have no authority. But unfortunately today, people in our world and in our culture have a problem with authority. People have a problem with God's authority specifically and God's sovereignty over all things and how we are called to submit to Him. Most people think and believe that they have a right 
and ability to self-govern. People believe they have a right and ability to establish their own truth and their own reality. They believe in a subjective, which means a self-defining reality, which is no reality at all. It's just like when we're kids and we play make-believe. It will soon come to an end. But what happens when objective truth, a truth that is unchanged, immovable, when this truth confronts them in this lie that they call reality. By the way, it will, all, it will confront all of us one day. One day the light will shine and will either be cast out into the darkness or drawn into the light through faith. But on a much smaller scale... This is what happens in this text. We see what happens when the truth confronts lies and when the light shines in the darkness and we see who truly holds authority over every creature and all creation. Here is a display of authority like no other as he displays his authority in teaching his authority over darkness, and his authority in battle. So first, as the disciples continue on in their journey with Jesus, they enter into Capernaum, or translated, the village of Nahum, that is the prophet, or the village of comfort. And Capernaum was a a busy village in Galilee. There was a military post, a tax office, and it had a good fishing industry because it was right on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. There were many who lived there who were skilled in various trades. And his four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, lived there as well. It would eventually become the home of Jesus. So it becomes a sort of base of operations for Jesus and his disciples. But also, it was the home of many scribes. Scribes were men of letters and books, meaning they were both writers and readers. They were highly educated men, equivalent to college professors with PhDs. And on any given Sabbath day, on the Saturday, They would teach in a packed synagogue. You see, the temple was reserved for worship, while the synagogue was reserved for teaching. Though they did sing songs of praise as well. So synagogue worship is the closest resemblance we have today to the worship that we have in the church. Since temple worship was done away with in Jesus Christ. And we see that some time has passed since Jesus began preaching. Because it says that they immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
See, in those days, I say, time has passed because in those days, for him to teach in a synagogue, he would have been invited by either a local scribe or a rabbi. Uh, Just like any institution, just like our own, uh, we can't just allow some random guy to enter into the podium or the pulpit and just start teaching. There had to be a level of examination. There had to be a sort of examination or popular approval. So by this time, he had become pretty popular for his preaching as he preached throughout Galilee about the kingdom of God. So here, he was a visiting rabbi of sorts. A rabbi is another word for a teacher. And this is what he came to do. This is what he came to do in the synagogue. It says he came teaching. He also came preaching, but preaching and teaching are different. Preaching and teaching are two different things. When you preach, you're proclaiming a teaching with confidence and assurance that that teaching is true. Now when you're teaching, you're explaining the same truth just in a little more detail. But there was a difference in the way Jesus taught. And the sort of rabbi or teacher he was, the scribes didn't expect. So what was their response? It says, and they were astonished at his teaching. The word for astonished here not only means surprised, they weren't just surprised, but the force of the word means it knocked the wind out of them. His teaching struck them a blow to the point that they may have been driven to a panic. What he was teaching is not clear from this text alone. But we have clues from the rest of scripture that he was challenging the standard teaching of his day. Remember when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he said repeatedly, You have heard it said, but I say to you. He was not only teaching about the true standards of God's law, but he was challenging the teaching of the scribes of his day and how they lowered the standard of God's law and how they wandered from the truth of God. Specifically in the areas of the Sabbath, laws regarding purity and laws regarding adultery and divorce. See, the scribes were the expositors and the explainers of God's law in those days. And they seemed to have drifted from his standards. We also get a clue about his teaching from when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth. And he picked up the scroll and read from Isaiah about the Messiah and said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Speaking about himself. So you could imagine their astonishment at his teaching when he taught. For he taught them, not as, one who, not as the scribes, but he taught them as one who had authority. See, over time in Israel, the scribes began to teach in a way that lacked authority. How? Why? Well, they were teaching by relying 
on other authorities. They would often teach and quote various other rabbis, showing their level of education. Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said that. So you could see where their teaching would have been just a session of name-dropping and flattering each other. And the Word of God would be hidden behind the words of men. They were highly educated and knew a lot of stuff about the history of theology and about the interpretation of the Old Testament. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with knowledge and good theology and good theologians. I actually encourage everyone to know these things. I've said it before, I don't read devotionals. They're not devotional for me. If it works for you, good, keep doing it. It doesn't work for me. And I don't believe uh, devotionals are more spiritual than good, solid theology. I don't read how-to books either. How to be a prayer warrior. The Bible tells me already. Pray without ceasing. There you go. There's no strict formula. I either read sermons or heavy theology. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing more holier to do one or the other. The problem for the scribes in those days was that they were teaching with no authority because they relied. That's the key. They relied on other authorities and not the authority of God and His Word. Rabbi so-and-so said it, so it can't be wrong. Don't question his authority when we are to check everything against the word of God. That's what we are called to do. They relied on their traditions and their own ingrown group of teachers. This has often been the criticism of uh, Reformed churches who subscribe to confessions and creeds But that's a bad interpretation. Because the confessions and creeds rely on the word of God. The problem with the scribes is that they did not rely on the authority in the word of God. They were going in the opposite directions, direction that the reformed churches have been seeking to do. And Jesus was different, of course. Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. So when He spoke, He spoke the exact words of God. When He spoke, it was, Thus saith the Lord. He taught as one with authority, not like the scribes, because His authority was far beyond the scribes. Because he was the word of God in their presence. It was an unfair advantage, of course. But he also relied on the word of God. As it was written in the scriptures. As the highest authority in faith, life, and practice. He would have posed the same question that I would pose to you. Have you submitted 
to that authority. To the authority of God in His Word. The authority that a minister has or that he thinks he has is derived from the Word of God. If we don't preach what the Word of God teaches and rely on God's authority, then the listener has every obligation to disregard it. Unfortunately, in those days and in our time, many still refuse to listen to the Word of God as it is preached and taught. Secondly, we also get a clue about what he was teaching as his teaching and his presence was a battle cry. It was a confrontation. It was a challenge. It was a challenge not just to the religious institutions. You know, these days, everyone's fighting against the institutions. But really, there was something more going on here. When he taught, it was a battle cry. A challenge to the spiritual evil that was behind the corruption in the institutions. As soon as Jesus steps into his ministry and his fame began to spread, all hell broke loose. It's similar to that scene in uh, Ghostbusters, the original 1984 version, not the, the atrocity that is coming out these days. The original 1984 Ghostbusters, when all hell broke loose in New York City. That is the scenery that we have when Jesus steps into his ministry. Because his presence and his teaching was a battle cry. It was calling all unclean spirits to his presence. So he says, and immediately there was in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. This man, that's another way of saying this man was possessed by a demon. You see, demons always try to imitate God. They're imitators. Just as God becomes incarnate in Jesus, demons possess men. But the difference is that possession is limited and demons can be destroyed. So the text answers, us, answers the question, who destroys these demons? Who has the power to destroy these demons? But first note the problem that is going on here. Notice the problem. The problem here is that the people in the synagogue had no clue. They had no idea that an unclean spirit was in their midst. They thought, and we are often in danger of thinking this way, is that as long as we're in the same building as the people of God, we do not have to worry about demon activity. Because that's all out there. That's all in the world. There can be no demon activity around us. But here, a man with an unclean spirit or demon was at home in the synagogue. This is where the people of God gathered to hear, get this, bad teaching. Bad teaching. They were listening to bad teaching and this demon was at home in the synagogue. 
This is why teaching in the church is always spiritual. Teaching is spiritual. Learning is spiritual. We often, we've probably been exposed to churches or um, pastors or leaders who often try to say, well, we're a praying church. Now, it's good to be a praying church. We should be a praying church. But some say we're a praying church because they have moved away from teaching. Teaching has been too burdensome. So they said, well, I'll resort to prayer. Teaching, that's for the intellectuals. That's for those who have college degrees. In learning, that, that's, that's for them over there. That, they're part of a separate category. But the real spiritual prayer, uh, people are those who pray. That's where the spiritual warfare is. But notice, the spiritual warfare in the scripture doesn't start until Jesus begins to teach. Teaching is spiritual. We cannot separate the two categories. Prayer is spiritual. That's where the warfare is. Teaching is not. We, we can st- skip Sunday school or, or, or the sermon, but as long as we're there to pray. That's faulty teaching. That's a faulty understanding of teaching. Teaching and learning is spiritual. We see this throughout scripture. When Paul says to renew your minds. To learn Christ. And Peter said to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here Jesus himself exemplifies how teaching in the church is highly important. And false or unfounded teaching must be pointed out and corrected. See, the scribes were teaching. Yet the unclean spirit wasn't moved or threatened by the teaching. He was hidden among the rest of the people. He didn't just show up. It says immediately, but he wasn't showing up to start a fight with Jesus. He was there. This is just where he made his presence known. He was there among the people. He was comfortable among people who have been deceived. This just gives us a hint as to the spiritual condition of the people in the synagogue. They have been listening and believing bad teaching. We witness this all the time in our day, unfortunately. But as soon as Jesus finished his teaching, the demon made his presence known. Because his teaching was a threat. And not only that, but Jesus' presence was a threat to this demon. It was a threat to his very existence. And, And you know, this is why demons can't possess Christians. Because we have the presence of Christ. By his spirit within us. And he cried out. What have you to do with us? He's speaking for all of the demons who are coming out. Jesus of Nazareth. In other words he was saying. Get away from me. Leave me alone. I am fine in this man's body. Among these other blind guides. They have no idea 
that I'm here. Because the presence of Jesus in this world and in his ministry marked the end of the rule of darkness. This is why the demon asks, have you come to destroy us? He recognizes Jesus as the one who has the power not only to redeem but to destroy. But what he says next is troubling. He he has already called him by his name, which is significant. But now he tries to reveal who Jesus is by calling him by one of his titles. Because he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, the demons know who God is, and they know facts about God. And they know when they see the Holy One of God, that is the Messiah. But the reason why this demon calls him by his name and title is because he seeks to defeat Jesus in battle. This was common in the Old Testament. Revealing one's name was an act of submission and defeat. And if the enemy retrieves the name, he pretty much got it in the back. He's won. This is why Jacob asks the angel of the Lord, what is your name? After Jacob wrestled with him. Then the angel blessed him and notice he never said his name. Same goes with uh, exorcism. The exorcist usually asks, asks the demon, what is your name? In order to gain power and exorcise the demon. So this demon is basically trying to reverse the process here. By calling him by his name and title that he already knows in front of those who do not know yet. He thought he had the upper hand. But he was misinformed. He was misinformed, as we will see in a moment. Jesus is not a mere man. But first, you're probably asking yourself the question, how is this situation relevant for us today since we don't see Demon possession is often. Well, it teaches us that preaching and teaching Jesus in his name is vital for the life of the church. Because teaching has spiritual effects as long as the Spirit of Christ blesses it. And if we listen. Our problem today is that we do not listen. We do not want sound teaching. Also, it is because our problem today is that we often think very worldly and anything spiritual, including the talk of demons, is often dismissed as superstition. We believe our our problems in this world are mainly institutional problems. So we become activists. We become very active, but never listen to spiritual truth. So we try to find worldly solutions to spiritual problems. And we do not recognize the demon activity that is going on all around us. 
though we do not see people possess, uh, demon possession, is said to have been reserved for that time because Jesus had come and the kingdom was coming. We don't see it often in our own lives. We don't even see it often in the scriptures. Notice, demon possession is not common in the scriptures. But, we would be naive to think that there is no longer any demon activity whatsoever. Because as the word is being faithfully preached in pulpits around the world, there will be demon activity, opposition from darkness, from the kingdom of darkness, parallel to the preaching of God's word. Where the authority of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, we ought to expect to stir up some trouble with the dark forces that are at work in the sons of disobedience. We saw this even during the Reformation. Where there was Reformation, there was counter-Reformation. Where there is truth, there will be lies. Where there is light, there will be darkness. And the enemy is constantly seeking to blind the eyes of those who have just been exposed to the truth, but have not yet believed. We have been watching it on the news. And we have been witnessing this lawlessness over the last year and a half. And we are often deceived into believing that we can solve these problems with man-made solutions. Make sure you vote for him. He is our savior. Excuse me? No, no. Savior of what? Might I ask? An avenger of the Lord? Sure. A servant of the Lord who bears the sword? Sure. Savior? No. No. He is not our Savior. There is only one Savior with the power that we try to give to men. And the authority that any man has is the authority that God has given to him. And as we see, it can be taken away very quickly. And none of these men have proven to have the kind of authority that Jesus has right here. It was in that, it was an unseen authority. Because there is a spiritual problem behind all of this deception that we see in the world. There's a spiritual problem we cannot see. There's demon activity and their role is to blind the minds of unbelievers in order to do the will of their father, Satan. This is why we need sound teaching to expose and uncover the darkness. This answers the question we often ask. Why? Have I been sharing the gospel with this one person for years or decades and he or she never believes? Because Satan and his minions are active in keeping them from the truth. Look, Jesus himself is teaching, yet later they will still be blind to the truth. 
But that doesn't mean we stop teaching. This is all the more reason why we are to continue teaching and proclaiming the truth. Because the only one who can expose the darkness is our Lord Jesus Christ, as he does here. And he exercises his authority over the kingdom of darkness. We would never think that. We usually divide God up. God is the king of light. Satan is the king of darkness. No. No. Jesus rules both. He is king of both. Light and darkness. All of creation belongs to him. Jesus' teaching and presence shone upon and exposed the darkness in that synagogue that day. And the demon could do nothing but react with a loud cry of horror. Yet, with one last attempt at rebellion. So thirdly, we see Jesus doesn't just expose the darkness. Jesus means business. As we think of the authority of Jesus, he doesn't only have authority in the way he spoke, but he had authority over all of his creatures as well. And the demons not only knew who he was, but they also obeyed him. It says, but Jesus rebuked them saying, be silent and come out of him. His authority was unparalleled and unmatched with any man in the Holy Scriptures. His authority was unparalleled and unmatched with any man in history. And any man who had this kind of authority to uh, expel a demon did it in his name. In Jesus' name. Not his own name. But here, Jesus comes in his own name. He comes in his own authority. He wasn't playing games with demons, as many people do today. He wasn't ghost hunting. He wasn't a ghostbuster. He wasn't a shaman. It's funny, I ran into a shaman just the other day uh, on our church property. And he explained how every man has Christ consciousness within them. This is a false teaching. Teaching that everyone can become a Christ or a Lord of his own life. Everyone can have the same authority as Christ. No. No. Jesus wasn't a charlatan. He wasn't a shaman. He didn't practice voodoo. There were no rituals here. He wasn't playing tricks with goat's blood and Ouija boards. He wasn't a spiritual guru or witch doctor playing healing games, rattling beads, or beating drums. He didn't need a spirit catcher. All he did was use his words. He just spoke, and it happened. Who else has that kind of power? Who else has that kind of power? He has authority over the demons. There are false teachers who teach that Jesus was just one of a long line of yogis that came to teach us spiritual truth and 
to help us use our chakras. My question is, what is a chakra? Nobody knows. We can't become little Christs. There is only one Christ, as there is only one Lord and God. And this is false and blasphemous teaching. Tell me which one of these spiritual leaders would have this kind of authority over the forces of darkness by using their chakras. All Jesus had to do was speak with authority just as God spoke all creation into existence. He was demonstrating who he was. He was saying, I speak everything into creation. You think I can't cast these little pests out of this poor, oppressed man? All Jesus had to do was speak to get rid of a problem in his creation. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We don't have that kind of power. Any power we have has been given to us. And it will be taken away. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It is about relying on this one who has the power. Because the truth of what is going on here is that this demon has now entered the presence of God himself. In fact, God summoned him there. And he knew that his time was coming to an end. He knew that his spiritual tyranny over this poor man was coming to an end. This demon was confronted by his creator. That is what is going on here. It isn't a game. And he feared to be in that presence. Notice, he feared to be in Jesus' presence. So Jesus wasn't a man with a higher conscience of spirituality. Demons don't fear that. Demons don't fear you or me. They don't fear us. They use this type of spirituality to blind you from the truth. From the truth of who Christ is. And just like all of us who are unholy in ourselves, we ought to fear to be in this presence. Because he is holy, holy, holy. We ought to fear. That's the first thought. As any natural human being, to be in the presence of Jesus, it ought to be fear. Overwhelming fear. So he rebukes him and says, Be silent. In other words, you have no voice here unless I give it to you. Come out of him. Now the demon was unwilling, still resisting, but in the end he couldn't. He couldn't. It says the unclean spirit convulsing him, the possessed man, and crying out with a loud voice or scream came out of him. 
I think he had no other choice in the matter. Now for us, this ought to be not only a fearful thing, but it ought to be an encouragement. This ought to be an encouragement for us because the same one whom we ought to fear, just as the demons fear, he casts out our fears from the gospel. And all the demons. And he redeems the whole man. He saved this man from this demon. He saved him. He had the power to save this man, to cast out this demon, and to fully heal him and make him whole again. In this passage, we ought to see our great God and Savior as he came to teach the truth of himself, to cast out demons, to heal, and to make man whole again, to save man wholly, and to make him holy. This text means that there is hope for you and I. This means that there is hope for any of us who come to him. If he can cast out a demon, he can conquer our sin. In fact, he conquers death. And he conquers Satan. He came to crush the head of the serpent, beginning with his pawns. He came to liberate us from our oppressors, not just physical, but spiritual oppressors. This is what Isaiah meant when he wrote of the Messiah that he would proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, that is, oppressed by the dark forces of this world, those things that we cannot see. This is our only hope. This is our hope as we see this world being led by Satan and his demons and as it lies in darkness. Our hope is that Jesus would shine through with his truth as it is proclaimed so that the blind would see such a great and mighty all-powerful Savior. He has the power and the authority to lift the blinders from the people's eyes and conquer and subdue us. To submit us to Him and His will. And this should be our constant prayer. That He would conquer us. That He would subdue us to His authority in our lives. Because what is tragic today is that the people in those days didn't see. Yes, they were all amazed. Or better, they were terrified at what was going on. But they still questioned Jesus. What is this? A new teaching with authority. Not that he wasn't teaching what the Old Testament taught. But he didn't teach like the scribes did. Who relied on other authorities. All except God's authority. 
Jesus taught with authority as he is the Lord. And he proved his authority that when he commands even the unclean spirits, they obey him. He not only spoke as the Lord, he proved he was the Lord. The most important question in this letter from the witnesses will come in the form of his own disciples. When he asked his disciple Peter, who do you say I am? That's the same question they're asking. Who is this Jesus? And though his fame would spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee and further, for many, he, he was just a popular teacher and healed and healer. He was the faith healer that so many are being misled by today. He would eventually turn blasphemer without understanding his true power and authority. And when he is finally revealed, many will not receive him. Many today still reject him. Many will put him on a cross even after seeing all of his works and hearing all that he taught. But they never listened. They never believed what they saw. They ignored him. They ignored him. So the question is, are you ignoring him? Are you ignoring him? Are you ignoring his call to himself? Have we submitted to his unlimited authority? Remember, he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Most people hear this passage and expect the preacher to teach them how they can have this same kind of authority. No. I'll ask you, have you submitted to his authority? As he is our Lord. Because that is the point here. He is showing him, them his authority as their Lord and God. Unfortunately, they ignored. And sadly, people are still even ignoring him today. And we always find a way to make it about ourselves. Just like the shaman. It's about me becoming a little Christ and having powers without acknowledging his power. But this doesn't change our mission, or should I say the Great Commission, as Jesus told us, to continue to teach and preach his authority, which confronts the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, because that is where the war is truly going on. It is nothing personal against the world. We do this so that men and women would be made whole like this man has been made whole. But all through the power and authority of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Amen.